come on a journey with a cinephile. to episode seven of journey with a cinephile a horror movie podcast as always i am your guide on this journey david garrett jr and for this episode this is what i'm dubbing winter slash year end four on this episode i'm going to have many reviews of us silent night deadly night part two thumbad anna and the apocalypse the purge and I also have featured reviews of 2019's Black Christmas, as well as Eli. And I'm going to have some holiday-themed music in between, as well as the trailers. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is kick you over to our first musical break before we get into the mini-reviews for this week. Enjoy. Give it away. 
Okay, and the first of my mini reviews this week is going to be for 2019's Us. This is written and directed by Jordan Peele. It stars Lupita Nyong, Winston Duke, and Elizabeth Moss. This is a horror mystery thriller from the United States and China. It is currently sitting on a 6.9 on IMDb and a 3.8 on Letterboxd. And the synopsis is, is a family's serene beach vacation turns to chaos when their doppelgangers appear and begin to terrorize them. Now, just a little bit of background for myself with this one. This was a film that I had highly anticipated coming out earlier this year. It was one that I was looking into showtimes while on vacation because I was gone the opening weekend. And I was actually talking to a guy that I was on a bachelor party with about possibly sneaking away for us to go check it out. And I kept seeing the trailer over and over again. Even though I don't necessarily watch trailers, I was in the theater and listening to it and caught just some images, so I was definitely intrigued. So I finally got the chance to see it when I still had a vacation day scheduled after I got home from that trip, and then I gave it a second viewing um, with my girlfriend who finally wanted to check it out. The big thing here is this starts off with a quote that does give away a bit, so I'm not necessarily going to go too much into it, but I will say is they bring up the fact that there are miles and miles of underground tunnels that don't really have use anymore, or in some cases don't really, people don't know what the use were for them. And from there we actually get a television back in 1986 as a camera zooms in on it. What I like is that on the side here we get a Chud VHS as well as I believe Nightmare on Elm Street and there's some other things, but then on TV we get a commercial for Hands Across America. Now these have significance later on, but I just like how this gets introduced so subtly here in the beginning. Now having seen Get Out before I checked this out, I knew there was going to be some social commentary going on, just because I know Jordan Peele included that in his first film, so I was expecting him to do that as well. And I will admit, I can see some of my friends won't pick up on what the social commentary is, or if they do, they're going to hate it, thinking that it's not really the issue that this film is trying to make it out to. But I have to say, I personally think that deepens the movie for me. Now, we do have an issue of race here. The father is Gabe, who's played by Winston Duke, really wanting to be everything like his friend Josh Tyler has, who is Tim Heidecker. We get a little bit that they are trying to outdo each other, where... His friend does have more money than him, or at least has been able to spend it and get some other things. So I do believe there's an issue of class here, which is shown through everyone against their doppelgangers. Now, I don't want to delve too much into this, because I don't really want to have a spoiler for a mini-review here. And something else I like about this, much like Get Out, is that we have black protagonists. I love that Adelaide, who is played by Lupita, is our you know, main star. I mean, as a horror fan growing up, we've all heard and made the jokes about who was gonna die out of the, out of my friends group. And then seeing the documentary of uh, Horror Noir, it made even more sense. I like seeing things from a different perspective and a film like this definitely helps. I do think that this is paced very well. I'm a big fan of the duality this film gives us and this happens fairly early on and then comes, you know, full circle as the more that we see. 
thought the ending was solid. Even though I thought the reveal was something, I the first time I saw this, I guessed what the reveal was. Having seen it twice now, it does make a lot of sense, and it doesn't really bother me like it did in the beginning. I thought we have some great acting here. Lupita is great. I love how sub so subdued her character is in the beginning. And we see fear growing in her after they've gotten to the vacation house. And when she's faced with saving her children and family, she grows into what she has to be in order to survive. And she's one that I really hope keeps doing horror films with her ability. And I'm all for that if that's the choice she decides to go. Uh, Duke was solid as her husband. He brings some comedy that I think is good for horror to alleviate a bit of tension when needed. But I don't think it goes too far where it hurt this. And I just think he's a solid character overall. Um, Elizabeth Moss plays the wife to Josh Tyler, um, her name being Kitty Tyler. I think both of them are solid as well. Moss is another actress that I've been seeing do a lot uh, in the genre as well as just things in general. And she's really blown up and I'm, you know... Really excited to see what she does, you know, going forward. And it's interesting that Heidecker I've seen on a TV show back in the day that was comedy. So it's interesting to see him in a film like this. I thought all the kids in the film did especially well. Um, I do have to give a shout out to Evan Alex, who plays Jason Wilson. It can be tough for children, and I try not to be too harsh on them. But I would say that him, as well as Shahadi Wright Joseph, who plays his sister Zora. I thought they both did really well, and we get to see some interesting fear from them and some actually really good character development for their age. The effects for the film were done mostly practical. That's something else that I really love about Peel and what he does in his films. I've heard in interviews that he loves the genre, and I think that amount of respect is there, and I think that actually translates to his work. The blood and effects that we get look really good, which helps. There are some CGI, but I think it's hidden mostly by shadows, which if you can't make it look good, I think this is the best thing to do in maintaining the realism. And I think the film is shot very well overall. The soundtrack was something else that was on point. It seems to be sl split between score and real songs, but the ones that were chosen are perfect for what are needed. I will never be able to hear the song, I'm, I got five on it without thinking of this movie now. I do think the opening kind of chorus type song that we get was definitely creepy and definitely helped to build tension so i think overall this is very it's done very well in my opinion and i just think the orchestral music that we get at the final showdown also works and it is actually the same one used in the trailer and now with that said i've seen horror fans be somewhat divided on this where i do think more people are on the positive than the negative though it took a bit of time after seeing this to process and you know writing this after seeing it twice helps me to enjoy this even more i'm normally a guy who doesn't like things to be force fed to him but i like that this film wants you to know certain things with the references that they drop i think there's some good social commentary and the acting really helps to bring this all to life i don't really have any issues that i did the first time around with the pacing as i feel it builds tension to a solid conclusion the score and effects were really good as well and i personally felt this is just a great movie overall and this is in contention with being one of my favorites of the year, and I had to come in with a 10 out of 10. Okay, and my second film that I'm going to talk about is Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 2. This comes from 1987. This is directed by Lee Harry. It comes from characters from Michael Hickey and Paul Kamey, and it also comes from a story by Lee Harry, Joseph H. Early, Dennis Patterson, and Lawrence Applebaum. And the screenplay being written by Lee Harry and Joseph 
H. Early, and it stars Eric Freeman, James Newman, and Elizabeth Caton. This is a horror thriller from the United States. And the synopsis is, the now adult Ricky talks to a psychiatrist about how he became a murderer after his brother, Billy, died, which leads back to Mother Superior. Now, this is a film that I heard about on podcasts, but had only seen the original. And I'd actually only seen the original just a couple of years ago. From what I heard, I kind of have an idea of what I was getting into, but was still intrigued to check it out, if I was going to be perfectly honest. Especially because... I had heard that the studio had the rights to this and decided they wanted to make a sequel, but were really lazy and I believe hired an editor to direct. Since they had the rights to the original, they just recut it where almost half of this part two is just recapping the first film and just using footage from it. Now we get some new footage that is interspliced and then after that halfway point we do start to see some other things as well as the final sequence takes place in what is considered the present. I will say this does become a bit problematic story-wise. Ricky, who is played by Eric Freeman, is telling the events of when he was a baby to Dr. Bloom, who is James Newman. But Ricky is going on like he remembers how his parents were murdered when he was a baby, so there's no way he could remember any of that. Now, if he would have stated that his brother kind of recounted the events to him is one thing, but I know at one point the doctor even asks how he could remember it and Ricky is just convinced that he does. I guess you could also say that Ricky is crazy so he's just kind of playing it off. I just don't really buy it. And not only that, but he's also telling other stories that he couldn't possibly have been there. His brother Billy left the orphanage at age 18 yeah, Ricky is telling these events like he has first-hand knowledge, but we also know that they never really sat down and could have kind of talked about it because he went on his murderous rampage in the first film, so there's no way that Ricky could have, you know, had time to actually learn, you know, firsthand. So he would be just telling what was written in the newspaper or anything like that, so there's really no point for Dr. Bloom to even ask. I, like I said, I guess we're supposed to just suspend disbelief here, but it just doesn't work for me as it feels lazy. And it is a shame, though. I don't mind the new footage that's shot. I do feel that the problem is that it isn't sustainable. That will take me to the acting here as well, where Freeman does really overact a lot. I will give him some credit, as he's just hamming it up and at playing this insane brother. I do find it intriguing, though, because he's a pretty good-looking guy. And, I mean, there's the infamous Garbage Day scene, which anybody who has seen this knows exactly what I'm talking about. It was a scene that I had never had checked out since I hadn't seen this movie yet, but I knew all about it from many different podcasts. Um, I do think Newman was pretty solid as the doctor who is a bit of a hotshot and thinks that he can definitely help Ricky. And he has a bit of an arrogance to him, which I think works. Elizabeth uh, Caton plays Jennifer, who is a love interest of Ricky. She's quite attractive, and we get to see her topless, which wasn't bad at all. And there's an interesting dynamic there which ends up landing Ricky in the mental hospital that he's in. I thought the rest of the cast was fine. Nobody really stood out, and a lot of it was actually archive footage from the previous movie. And I do have to give credit here. They did well in editing all of this together, of this old footage with the new footage, but it actually kind of makes it just a clip show. I can't give them too much credit, as it is a lazy thing to do to make this movie. And I don't really know if this is something that was done prior to this or not. I do know some of the older Universal films would have a few clips to kind of fill you in, and they didn't have the longest running time. 
but I don't ever remember seeing something like this. I have seen things like Puppet Master Legacy pretty much just goes ahead and does that same thing, but that was many years after. And I do like how this movie ends as probably the best part of it when, to the effects, I'm really only going to judge the new footage on this, which I thought they were fine. The blood looked fa fairly real aside from there was a dummy head, which was pretty obvious. I do have an affinity for the 80s, so I won't hold it too much against this movie as it does have some charm, and I prefer it over CGI if I'm going to be honest. There just weren't a lot of them overall if I'm going to be honest. The film is shot fine as well, but nothing great. Now with that said, I have to come in judging this fairly harshly. This really is nothing more than half a movie with the other half being a clip show. I did, and I do have to give credit, as you don't see a lot of that from this era. It's just a shame that the new footage isn't all that bad, and I kind of just wish they would have ran with that a bit more. The acting was a bit over the top, and making this into a clip show, the editing is fine there, but outside of that, it doesn't do great in building tension. I do think the effects are fine, it's shot well, and the soundtrack fits for what was needed. It doesn't really necessarily stand out, though. I definitely have to give this below average, though, and it's hard to recommend unless you just want the gist of the original and watch this one. And I do recommend, I heard another podcast say that this is a lot better if you watch it not back to back and kind of have some time in between it. That's the same thing that I did, so it did work for me. And I will say, this film is fun, it's just not great. So I do have to come in with a 4 out of 10 here. And my next review for this episode is going to be for Thumbbad from 2018. This is directed by Rahi Anil Barvi. The creative director is Anad Gandhi. The co-director is Adesh Prasad. And the writers are Mita Shah, Adesh Prasad, Rahi Anil Barvi, Anad Gandhi. And this is inspired by the works of Narayan Dharap. And it is starring Soham Shah, Jyoti Malshi, Anita Date. This is a drama fantasy horror thriller, and it's from India and Sweden. This is sitting at a 8.2 on IMDb and, and a 3.7 on Letterboxd. The synopsis here is a mythological story about a goddess who created the entire universe. The plot revolves around the consequences when humans build a temple for her firstborn. Now my reason for checking this out was during December I like to do kind of a year-end wrap-up to compile as many films for my that came out this year for my top 10. And I heard a couple people from social media speak highly of it, which included uh, my buddy Tim Walker, and then I also saw Jason Lloyd of uh, Orphelia say that this was a really good movie that needed to be checked out. And I'm also pretty sure that Shockwave's podcast had this on their had at least one of them had it on their list as well. Now, outside of just knowing that this was good, I came in pretty blind. Just to give you an idea, this is told in three chapters, but to start it off, we actually learn about the goddess. She gave birth to her firstborn, who is Hostar, and he's not to be worshipped because his mother created the heavens and all the other gods, and Hostar got greedy and took the unlimited gold that his mother produces. Then when he went for the grain, the other gods and goddesses locked him away in the womb of their mother. And from there, we get this in, as I said, three chapters, with the first chapter being... Vinayak, who as a boy is Dihundajar Prabhakar Jogelkar, and it's in the 1920s. He lives with his mother, who is Jyoti Malshi. 
as well as his brother. And every day she makes food for their grandmother who is cursed and sleeps all day. And we see pretty soon after that there's something very wrong with her when Vinayak tries to look in on her as well as wants to know about this gold that is supposed to be inside of this mansion that they for the most part reside in but usually kind of just take care of what's inside chapter two is when vinyak is now soham shah he is an adult and he's married to baidi who is anita date and they're actually living a meager life vinyak knows about the legend of this gold and has set his life goal to trying to find it and the final chapter takes place when india has obtained its freedom vinyak and his wife now have children and he ends up taking his oldest to Thumbad, and we see the effects of his greed and what it does to his family. And this god might actually exist like the legend states as well. This movie, I have to say, is visually stunning in how it presents things as well as just its overall look. To get into the story, I love that we get this legend to start out with. This tale isn't too different from other mythology that I've studied in the past. But I will admit, I don't know a whole lot about Indian culture. I just like how this presented, this original myth is presented through images carved into stone with a bit of animation there to liven it up. I also think the different chapters are interesting. Early on, we get introduced to the modest life that Vinayak is living. He's really interested in this legend and trying to see if this fortune really exists. I can see the greed runs deep with him. Which is interesting because his mother really just wants to be able to support her and her children and keep with the old rituals of their old old way. As an adult, we see that Vinayak really just wants more. And we see how this decision affects his children. I really not only enjoy this because of it's an allegory, but it's also a cautionary tale of how greed corrupts. Something interesting, going back to why this is visually stunning, it's always raining in Tumbad for what happened in the past there. So it always has this dreary look. And not only that, but it's run down and just overgrown, which is interesting as well because this is what happens to Vinayak's place as he uses the gold that he takes for worldly pleasures. His wife is very similar to his mother, and I think they're more in line with the cult, like the old culture of the country overall. Vinayak seems more like an American or a capitalist as he's quite greedy. This also has some shots that are just absolutely beautiful to look at, and as I'm watching this, last night that was one thing that went through my head where i was just you know in awe of some of this i would say that the pacing of this movie is pretty solid this definitely is more of a slow burn i would say that's not to say that nothing happens though or that we don't get creepy images for because for one thing the grandmother is quite terrifying and made me feel uncomfortable if i'm going to be honest said for uh hestar but this does run 105 minutes so there's definitely some downtime to build the story I do like how this ends, and I'm actually kind of curious for the aftermath of everything as well. I thought the acting was good across the board. Shot is great as Vinayak. He's such a jerk, to be honest. And we see from an early age, when he is portrayed by Jokel Carr, that he's greedy. It is part of his nature and just ingrained there. It gets worse the more that he fuels it. And I feel we get a bit of the sins of the father are realized to the son as well. Melshi was fine in her role as the one who's trying to show him the right way of doing things as his mother. I feel bad for Date. She's a good wife and is really neglected horribly by her husband. He thinks that he's just providing for her financially is enough. And no matter what, she's always there for him. 
So I just feel bad in that situation. Rajini Chakarborty also plays Vinayak's mistress. I don't like that he's cheating. It does seem to be ingrained in the culture as even Vinayak's son makes that statement. I don't like that he's cheating though, but she is quite attractive, I'm gonna be honest. I thought the rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed as well. As for the effects, I did have a slight issue here. I thought the effects on the cursed grandmother looked good. I'm not sure if they're CGI or practical, but I was on board for that look and she was terrifying if I'm gonna be honest. The only issue I had was the more that we see Hastar, I had, the more I didn't care for it. It's creepy at first, but then we just keep getting glimpses then. But the more they focus on it, the more I can tell he, it's just a CGI character. And I don't think it looks the greatest. Now, the chamber that they encounter him in is very interesting because we know that he's kept in a womb of his mother. And how they get down there, I actually really dug that part as it's definitely mythological and makes a whole lot of sense for everything that the film is establishing. As for the soundtrack, we get, do get three spots where this goes into a semi-montage and we get some Indian singing. Now, I don't mind this as it does give us some deeper exposition as well as deeper parts of the story, so that works. I have seen other films in film class from India, and I do know that they tend to use musical numbers even if the films aren't musicals. So I'll take what we get here as opposed to some of the other ones I've seen. And I do think that fitted for what was needed as well, uh, just to kind of set the mood as well as build tension when needed. Now, I ended up really digging this movie. I'm a big fan of mythology, and I like and I like to learn more about other cultures. I'm also a fan of my films having a bit of allegory or cautionary tale, which this has both of them in the aspect of greed. It is really fitting as American to see this play out, even if it is in a different country. I thought things were paced very well as it's more of a slow burn but I tend to like movies like that. That's not to say we don't get some creepy images or action in general. The acting was good. The effects are hit or miss I'm gonna be honest but it is shot beautifully overall. The soundtrack isn't necessarily my bag but I do like how they use it. I will warn you that this is from India so I watched it with subtitles on and it is in their native language. If that's an issue I'd say move along. If not, I feel this is a really good film and it's actually going to contend with one of my favorites for the end of the year. My rating is a 9 out of 10. And for my next film is going to be Anna and the Apocalypse from 2017. This is directed by John McPhail, written by Alan McDonald and Ryan McHenry, and it stars Ella Hunt, Malcolm Cumming, and Sarah Swire. This is a comedy fantasy horror musical. From the United Kingdom. It is sitting on a 6.0 on IMDb as well as a 3.2 on Letterboxd and the synopsis is, is a zombie apocalypse threatens a sleepy town of Little Haven at Christmas forcing Anna and her friends to fight slash and sing their way till, to survival. Now this was a movie that I missed catching last year in the theaters. The Gateway Film Center shows quite a bit of these independent films but the problem is sometimes the schedule doesn't always work out for me with work as I work the traditional, you know, 8 to 5 type shift. So I was kind of mad at myself that I didn't get a chance to watch it then. But I decided to this year to give it a viewing now that it's on streaming since it fulfilled my requirements of being a Christmas movie. And this was something that I knew my girlfriend would be interested in watching with me as well. And I knew this was a musical, but those can be hit or miss for me. 
I had heard good things from people in the community that I really respect, so I definitely was intrigued to check this out. And then kind of going from that, musicals are something that are love-hate for me. The ones that I love, I'm all about, and the ones that I don't, I despise. With that said, this isn't a traditional musical, and I dig that. I would almost put this more in the vein of like a Rocky Horror Picture Show, where we get normal movie with musical numbers added in there. And I would actually say, from what I remember for this, there's even less than you'd get at even like a Rocky Horror. And I should also point out that I'm a big fan of zombie films in general, so I can get behind this idea. I should also point out that these are more in the vein of Romero zombies as well. Now going from there, I do kind of feel like this is a mashup of Harry Potter, Glee, and Shaun of the Dead. I think the former because the school outfits they wear look very similar, and my girlfriend actually looked at me and said that that's what they reminded her of as well. And it's also being set in the United Kingdom. Glee, for obvious reasons, and the similarities to Shaun in the fame that this is a Zomcom. I actually think this works well. In We established that Anna, who's our main character, played by Ella Hunt, wants to do her own plan for her life, and her best friend is John, who has a crush on her. He is portrayed by Malcolm Cumming. Mark Benton plays Tony, who is Anna's father. He wants the best for her, even if it goes against her plan. Now, I should point out here that Tony's wife and Anna's mother passed away, so I feel like there's a lot of pressure on him to point her in the right direction and he can be a little bit hard because her plan isn't necessarily traditional to what parents want as he wants her to go to college where Anna wants to travel the world. We also get the character of Steph who is played by Sarah Swire. She took a lot of time for me to figure out and I felt bad for her. She doesn't necessarily seem to fit in with her sexual orientation as she is a lesbian and it's a shame because she's actually one of my favorite characters and wanted things just to kind of break for her. Then we also have the obnoxious couple of Chris, portrayed by Christopher Laveau, and then his girlfriend Lisa, played by Marley Sewell. Now, Chris is into video production, while Lisa is the lead in the school play that is getting ready to go on. And I was almost curious for a bit here if Steph was interested in Chris, but I think it's more that she wants her relationship to be closer to what Chris and Lisa have, so it's a little bit more of envy is what I think after reviewing this as a whole. I would say that the comedy aspects of this do hurt. I never really worry about the characters because of it. I do have to say there are some shocking things that happen to certain characters that I wasn't expecting and there are some of them that end up hurting the ending for me. I know they're trying to humanize a certain character but I don't really care for it so that does bother me. This is still entertaining and I never found myself bored, so it's paced in a way that it does you know, keep things moving along. And even going from that, I'm going to shift over to talking to, about the soundtrack as this is a musical. I'm not going to lie, I actually really dug some of these songs. I heard one of them when Duncan over at the podcast Under the Stairs did his third compilation and this song was one of the ones. And when it played in the movie, I immediately added it to my Spotify list. Not all the songs landed to me. But that's the case for most musicals, and I don't mind the combination of normal music to the musical numbers that we get. I feel overall it works out. And I should also say here that some of my issues with the comedy and with the pacing is that I know with musicals you kind of have to have a understanding of the fantastical nature that you possibly could get there. So I do factor that in as well. As for the effects, I've already stated that these are slow-moving zombies. I think that works, being that it is a musical, so you get 
people singing and dancing while there are zombies in the scene with them. I thought the look that they have was solid. And there's one decapitation that I thought the effect looked great on. I know there are some CGI effects here, especially with some of the blood. It didn't necessarily bother me. And I think that goes back to being a musical as well. I thought this was shot very well overall. And then the last thing to cover would be the acting. I was a big fan of Hunt. I thought she does well as the teen that doesn't know what she wants to do with her life. And her father, you know, having his plan for her. And he's stubborn for what happened to his family. I like that we needed this all to fall apart around her for her to find herself. I feel bad for coming, though. He really digs Anna, but he's been friend-zoned hard. What happens with him, though, made me call out as I felt bad. Swire, I thought, was great. She's quirky. And I just wanted good things to happen to her for, you know, everything that's established about her character. The character of Nick, played by Ben Wiggins, I wasn't a fan of, but that's more of his character than his performance. He invoked a reaction out of me, so I do have to give him credit as that's what I'm normally looking for. I thought Laveau, Sue, Benton, as well as Paul Kay and the rest of the cast were all solid in support of what was needed here. Now with that said, I really did fall into the camp that I enjoyed what we got. This is a solid horror comedy musical for sure. I like that we get the characters' lives established and how the end of the world affects that. I enjoy seeing how they try to live through normal high school drama as they're as well, you know, going along with that. The acting is good. I thought the effects were as well. The pacing is hurt a bit by being part comedy and being a musical. I will say that I did like the soundtrack overall. I don't feel this is a great film, but I really did enjoy it and had a lot of fun. So I would still say this is a good movie overall. So my rating for Anna and the Apocalypse is going to be an 8 out of 10. All right, and the last film that I watched for this week is The Purge from 2013. This is written and directed by James DiMonico, and it stars Ethan Hawke, Arlena Hetty, and Max Burkholder. It is a horror thriller from the United States and France. It is currently sitting on a 5.7 on IMDb and a 2.6 on Letterboxd. The synopsis being, a wealthy family is held hostage for harboring the target of a murderous syndicate during the purge, a 12-hour period in which any and all crime is legal. This is a film that I was really excited to check out when I first heard about it. I thought the concept was not only amazing, but also terrifying. Now, I originally saw this with my ex for the first time, and both of us really didn't care for it. We both thought it was all right but that it could have been better. My new girlfriend thought the idea was really intriguing and wanted to see this movie, and especially since my Halloween costume was someone who participates in The Purge, so we decided to give it a viewing. And I should also kind of state here that this starts off letting us know that it takes place in America in the year 2022. There's been a new law enacted, which I had kind of already stated earlier from the synopsis. The repercussion is that an unemployment is down to 1% and crime is also down. During the alarm that goes off as the annual purge commences, we get that level 4 weapons and below are legal. You cannot kill high-ranking generals and government personnel. They're off limits. But everything else is fair game crime-wise. And the film does a really good job here at showing us different images from around the United States during this event. This film follows... James Sandin, who's Ethan Hawke, and his wife is Mary, played by Lena Hetty, and they have a daughter, Zoe, Adelaide Kane, and they have a son as well, Charlie, who is Max Burkholder. The film establishes kind of their normal everyday life, but we also see that there is this tension 
as the annual purge is approaching them. And things all take a turn when Charlie notices a bloody stranger coming up their street and lets him inside of their house, which brings this group. They're led by a polite leader, and his name is Reese Wakefield. And then they become the target, like the synopsis states, of this group as they have this stranger inside their house that this group wanted to kill. And I do have to say, this group is quite creepy with the mask they're wearing. Now, I've seen this one twice. I've also watched both seasons of the television show as well as the sequel to this film and then the prequel, The First Purge. The only thing I haven't watched as of yet is The Purge Election Year. Now with that out of the way, I love the concept here. I won't take this too political, but I do think that there is something that could really happen in the United States, especially how one side of the political spectrum talks about those that are less fortunate than themselves. Because in this one, we really see that this group that is attacking the house is hunting a homeless veteran. And they keep calling him things like swine and that he's pretty much just calling him a lesser human being to them. But it's also interesting is that the Sardins have worked their way into this lifestyle on the back of James's work. And we actually see the neighbors are resentful of them so this film really does explore the concept of classism, which I find to be interesting. We also get an interesting family dynamic. James, I picked up on, is quite neglectful as he really just seems to ignore his family and to make up for it. Over dinner, they have to talk about their day. Zoe calls him out about doing this, and I feel she's kind of right. It seems like he came from nothing and earned everything that he has, but has lost sight of what really matters. I actually don't even think he likes The Purge, but because it helped him to get where they are, it is hard for him to speak out against it since he's pretty much a profiteer. I get the feeling that their new Founding Fathers members, which is the political group that enacted this Purge idea, but I think that this family is members of it to fit in where the children are more aligned with my political beliefs, where they're a little bit more liberal. But then my issue ends up becoming with this film is that we have a great concept of all crime being legal for 12 hours. They instead, on this film, decided to focus on one family inside their home, and it's a home invasion movie. I don't hate it, because what the group is doing to the family is legal. How things play out in the end are also all legal at that time as well. I find that intriguing, and my girlfriend also brought up a good point. How could you continue to live on the street with these people knowing the things that went down? I just wanted to see what is happening outside with the Purge Moors. I feel like that's more interesting than what is happening inside this house. But that is just something that I personally... I also find the pacing to be a bit sluggish both times that I've seen it. I'm into it in the start. I like to learn little things that are very subtle in this new world of the United States. You can feel the tension of this event looming over the family and they do go as they... And also you can even feel it when they go into lockdown. I think there's an interesting dynamic that happens and I really like that it's really just a distraction for Charlie to start the catalyst of what is ends up being the crux of everything. It does help to define the characters as well, but I'll admit, I was just bored for a good portion of it, where I feel like it should be ten tenser. I will say though, I do like that we get the aspect of distrust, as you can be killed by anyone without any true repercussions. I think the ending is fine, it just doesn't hold me, if I'm going to be honest, to care as much as I probably should. I think the acting though is solid. Hawk and Hetty both feel like these parents. They love their children, but they're losing themselves in the lifestyle that they're trying to maintain. 
It really takes Charlie for them to figure out who they really are. Burkholder and Kane as the children are both fine. Neither of them really stand out. Edwin Hodge is solid as well, but he does disappear for long stretches in this film. Now, he is the stranger that they let in who is actually a homeless vet. What I really like is that you don't get to know him, but from his attire and just how he carries himself, you do put his character together, which I thought was very well done. Wakefield is quite creepy along with the rest of his group. They're intriguing though, as they seem to be like people that aren't really good at what they're doing, but they're rich and so it makes them overconfident and arrogant. And we also get Henry, who is Tony Oler. He was a bit whiny as he portrays the boyfriend of Zoe that James doesn't really care for because he's a little bit older than her and he doesn't think he has good intentions for his daughter. I just didn't really care for his character and I know why he's here and I understand, you know, that how his whole little thing plays out. Just not a huge fan of it. I thought the neighbors rounded this out well for what was needed. They definitely seem like uppity neighbors who don't like the Sandins because of, I personally think it's because they aren't from the same class originally and that they don't like that this other family profited off of them by selling the security systems and they just don't see them as you know people that are on the same level as them i thought the effects here were fine we actually don't get to a lot of them i think a lot of the actual blood looks good it is hidden as the power is shut off to the house so it's mostly dark it is not a bad move if you can't necessarily make your effects look great that you could hide them with shadows so i'll give them a little bit of leeway there is some cgi blood that comes from gunshots mostly I didn't think it looked great. I could tell it was CGI, but it wasn't the worst I've seen, so I don't, I'm not going to harp on that either. I will say there's a pretty brutal scene near the end where someone is hit in the face with a gun, I believe. I thought the blood there looked great. It actually made me cringe a bit, if I'm going to be honest. This film is shot well. I didn't have any issues there. There's some creepy editing done as well with the security footage around the house. I don't necessarily know if we needed it, but it is there, and it definitely made me feel uncomfortable. This isn't a bad film. It just doesn't necessarily work for me as well as it should. I love the concept of this new, in quotes, holiday that we have. I love the idea of how the new founding fathers think that it is making the country better. And later films will explore, you know, more of that. There's some social undertones of classism and losing oneself to maintain a lifestyle. The acting is solid and the effects are as well. The soundtrack really didn't stand out to me, but it also doesn't necessarily hurt either. It just fits. I just want a bit more of the actual purge for this movie. But I do think the home invasion aspect, especially since it's legal, is a solid idea overall. I personally just feel this is above average, though, and give it a 7 out of 10. Now, with that said, I am going to take you to the trailer for my first feature review. It's my privilege to teach you this semester. Enjoy your winter breaks and Merry Christmas. Sup, ladies. Excited for tonight? It is our last day of our last fall semester of college ever. <laughs> Can you take a photo of all of us? Of course. Where's Helena? She was pining back of sodas earlier, but she looked really good. Cheese. We shouldn't have let her go back by herself. She's fine. Come on, live a little. Helen, 
hasn't gotten home yet. If I were missing, I'd want you to unleash the bloodhounds and track me down. She was at DKO last night. Still creating problems, huh, right? Hello? Hello? I'm worried that something bad happened. It's winter break. Could just be a delay of some sort. Snow. My friend is missing. Nine times out of ten, the girl's just with a boyfriend. I will bring you to your knees. Alive. You're all insane. I'm tired of hiding. I'm tired of running. Go, 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 go! Ho, 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 bitch. You mess with the wrong sisters. featured review for this episode is going to be of this year 2019's Black Christmas. This is directed by Sophia Tackle and she is also a co-writer along with April Wolf. It stars Imogen Poots, Elise Shannon, and Lily Donahue. This is a horror mystery thriller from the United States and New Zealand. It is currently sitting in a 3.1 on IMDb and a 2.1 on Letterboxd. And the synopsis is, is a group of female students are stalked by a stranger during their Christmas break. That is, until the young sorority pledges discover that the killer is part of an underground college conspiracy. Now, I'm going to lead off here stating that I really dig the original. It isn't my favorite, but it's a classic for sure. I didn't mind the first remake, but I recognize there's some major flaws with it. When this was announced, I was intrigued to check it out, but I had been hearing a lot of blowback and personally I like to come into any movie open-minded to give it a chance and I actually caught this opening night with my girlfriend. Now we start this seeing that it's around Christmas time. We get to see the stockings inside of a sorority house and the young women are having a party. But we end up seeing there's a woman leaving a library. Uh, she is Lindsay played by Lucy Curry. She thinks that someone is following her and she starts to get weird direct messages from Caleb Hawthorne, who is the founder of the school that they go to. Now to preface this, he's been dead since the late 1890s and the messages are quite threatening. She's then attacked by someone in a black mask. It then introduces us to our lead the next morning. She is Riley, played by Poots. She's in a sorority, but I gathered from this opening scene that she has a bit of a self-esteem issue from how she's dressing herself from that morning. Now, there will be something that I'll talk about here in a little bit as to why it makes sense that she's uh, kind of getting ready this way. 
But then from here, we see her interact with some of her sisters, which includes Marty, who is Donahue, Jesse, who is Brittany O'Grady, and Helena, played by Madeline Adams. She then goes to class that is taught by Professor Gelson, who is Carrie Ells. Now, we get some inter- an interesting interaction here where he calls out Riley over how she describes the writing that he has been reading off, where Beek said it's written by a man, and he reveals that it's actually written by a woman. Now, he's trying to point out that it's problematic mindset of feminism, where I will get into this a little bit later on, but this is where it starts to get a little bit heavy-handed. And then from there at the local coffee shop that Riley works at, we get to see some more interaction between some of these young ladies as well as the guy who is interested in Riley. Now, his name is Landon, and he is portrayed by Caleb Eberhardt. And he's kind of shy and somewhat awkward, but we do see that Riley is interested. And before this actual scene here, we get to see the social justice warrior of the sorority, Chris, who is is portrayed by Elise Shannon. We get to see where she's trying to get a petition signed to have Professor Gelson removed. And I don't mind how politically active she is, but I'll get into this a little bit more later on as well but she's a little bit over the top in what she's doing and then that night there's a talent show at the fraternity of the founder riley is prepping chris marty jesse and helena the problem is that helena is missing and riley goes to find her on her way she sees an odd ritual with pledges to this fraternity and it looks to be darker than actual fraternity initiations would be and she finds, ends up finding her friend in a room with Phil McElhaney, who is portrayed by Ben Black. Now, we actually get to meet him at first at the coffee shop where he's pretty much an asshole. There's no other way really to describe it. And at this moment, he's coming on a little too strong, and she steps in to prevent Helena from being raped. Now, I want to say that's not necessarily what possibly could happen, but that's definitely the feel that it's going towards. And it's, a, it's also around this time that we learn that Riley is, res, is reserved as the former president of the fraternity, Brian Huntley, who is portrayed by Ryan McIntyre, actually did this to her and raped her, I believe it was like three years ago when she was younger. He is also back in town and going to be at the talent show, and this is partly why Riley is not performing, as we did get to see a video previously where she's a pretty talented singer. Now the girls go on stage and sing a song that at first everybody is into until it's actually calling out the frat for what happened to Riley and the culture of them in general. This doesn't sit well as they're pretty much booed off stage by the guys as well as celebrated by the women in the audience. This doesn't sit well with the fraternity as the sisters start to be picked off. We see some of them getting attacked like Helena when she's back in the house as well as some of the other sisters. But it comes to a head the next night when the house is attacked by men in black masks. These young women have two choices though. They can die or they can fight back. And it gets much darker the more that they learn about what is going on. Now I'm going to go ahead and just give this disclaimer here. I'm fully prepared for possibly getting some blowback for some of the things I'm going to say. I will admit I've been called misogynistic before which I believe in my actions and things that I've said and how I believe that is far from the truth but I'll admit I have said some things that I regret under the influence of alcohol is that an excuse no it's not I will definitely own what I said and move forward from there now with that out of the way this film has some really bad writing 
I love when there's social commentary in my films, and I actually prefer films that do and give them, you know, props when they do it. When they do it correctly, though, I feel this is too ham-fisted and too in your face, though. I feel there's a good movie here and a good story as well, but they decided to just go too on the nose with it, and it really just comes off poorly. But I want to start with the positives. I love what they did here by changing what we got from the original. I think that's actually one of the issues that I have with the first remake is that it tries to be too much like the original while giving too much backstory that just doesn't make sense. Where this one, we all know that many of the founding fathers of the United States are racists. You can argue that all you want, but many of them had slaves and thought that there were people that were more superior. And the culture that we have at the time, they were considered to be superior over women as well. I mean, you can just look at it to see who had rights back then and who didn't. Hell, I can say that even today we have people that I know around me that think and speak this way. So, despite how far we think we've come, we still haven't came as far as we really need to be. This film establishes, though, that Caleb Hawthorne, you know, the founder of the school, was into black magic. I believe it's just something that's in passing, but it is established, and I did remember hearing it. I dig that, and I even like where it leads to. But I also think it becomes a bit problematic and could have been handled a little bit better. Now, I'm going to have a spoiler section at the end of this, and I will have it time-stamped and coded and everything like that. So if you don't want things to be spoiled, you can avoid that. But I'm going to tell you, I'm going to delve a little bit more into that later. And going from there, I even like that these young women are fighting back. I actually really enjoy that in my films, if I'm going to be perfectly honest. Despite what feminists might think, I believe that most slashers are actually empowering towards women. Sure, many of them are made by men and give nudity to the guys, but a majority of slashers have, you know, the final girl that ends up defeating the killer. My problem, though, is that the writing of this makes these women sound really dumb in the beginning. And as I was watching it with my girlfriend, she looked over at me, and she's a former sorority member, and she thought the same exact thing. And I actually waited for her to say it before I did, just to see if she thought the same way. Now, I can see if they're trying to establish them as they are so that way we see the growth in them to strong women but you could do that without making them to be as bad as they are to start off with I legit cringed listening to some of the things they said and I could have done without the climactic scene that I saw somebody on Twitter say was Anchorman-esque and I'm sorry I don't remember who you were on there but you definitely were right in that statement now my goal is not to just sit here and bash this film I just want to reiterate that I do think that some of the frat guys that are represented in this film is actually how they are in real life. My problem though is that Nate, who is played by Simon Mead, is dating Marty and he is so beaten down by her and Chris for pretty much just being a male. Now that's where I have my issues with internet feminism because you can't lump everybody in and just generalize because if males did that we get bashed for it where these women can make these statements here when that's not necessarily the case. And there'll be something I'm going to bring up, again, in spoilers as well for this. And going back to what I was saying, he stands up for himself and he's treated like shit for it. And I will admit, I was on Nate's side when he you know, said what he said here. Like him, I agree with an extent to the women in this, and I do believe that they should be fighting for their equality, and I want to help them fight for their equality. The problem is, though, you can't 
beat these people down just because of the sex they were born. Now that'll take me here to the pacing of the film, which I thought was actually fine. We get a runtime of about 90 minutes. I think it establishes things pretty early on. We get an interesting death right there in the beginning. And then from there though, it literally just starts to ram things down our throat. And then we learn about our characters. Then we get moments where they have to decide what they do. I do like that Riley gets growth into the character that she has to be. There are some really interesting dilemma here with Chris, which is funny because she's so outspoken, but when she needs to truly fight, she kind of crumbles, which I believe that makes a lot of sense. Now, as I keep saying about um, Riley, I think Poots did a really good job here. I'm a big fan of her, and I do think she does a great job in portraying the after effects that sexual assault can have on someone. She's so much more of an introverted now, and I do believe we get that established from that opening video that is shown to her while she's getting ready. But I do like how she becomes a badass in the end. Shannon portraying as Chris, I actually really liked her in that she does come off as an obnoxious social justice warrior. And then I like when she hits the fan though, she become, it breaks her and she doesn't actually want to fight back because I do believe she falls under those people that, at least she does it in person, but she definitely seems like someone who, when she's behind a keyboard, is so much tougher until she actually has to do a, a real truly call to arms here. I do have an issue, though, that the other minor characters are a little bit too over the top in writing them as, well, for the males at least, they all come off as super misogynistic, which the fraternity guys I can understand and get down with. I don't like the writing of dumbing down the sorority girls, though. I will give a credit to Eberhardt as I thought he was kind of adorable and Mead as well as Els Black and McIntyre were all solid in you know being these horrible human being frat guys because the goal there is to make us hate them and that's what ends up happening. Now to get to the elephant in the room, being that this is a slasher film that I have to go into the effects, being that they decided to go PG-13, I'm not surprised by this though coming from Blumhouse. I do think we get some cool deaths even though it is PG-13. This one includes an icicle and there are some that were done in the original film that are used here as well. The problem does become though that a lot of these are done off screen and they're also toned down on the blood. I don't think this ruins the film, it does bring it down for me a bit because I've already talked about my issues with the story and with the writing so I felt like if that's going to be as bad as it is for me you needed to do something with the effects which we don't. I still do think that they did well in building tension, and the framing of this actually is really well done for that as well. Now with that said, I came in with an open mind, but this isn't a good film. It is a shame because there are some really good ideas and concepts here, but it's just not written well. It is too on the nose, the characters are written poorly, and the dialogue at times is cringeworthy. The runtime and the pacing though are fine. There is some really good acting here, and I thought the effects were good for what we got. I will also say there's some really bad acting, and I just wanted more from the effects. The soundtrack really didn't stand out to me, except I did like the song that they sing at the frat during the talent show, and it does feel like a Christmas film. I saw that someone from the horror community saying that this is for 13-year-old girls and she wanted to see their reviews, which is fine. I just think that there's a better way to present this for them, as well as to bring in more fans in general. This unfortunately is below average, and it's a shame because it could have been so much better. My rating here is going to be a 4 out of 10. Now, I'm going to get into a bit of the spoiler section here. Okay, 
Now, what I was going to say is that we do get some really good ideas here where this one goes supernatural where the original one didn't. The statue of Calvin Hawthorne is removed from the main building because of Chris and then is taken to his fraternity that he also founded. Now, it is there that they discover that inside there is this black, like, viscous liquid that if you do the incantation that is also inscribed inside, it actually makes any male that has it put on them to become mindless, misogynistic monsters. I don't mind this. My problem, though, is when we have people going on and on about how the, oh, the founder is had this grandmaster plan for the males to rise up and for them to you know kill all these women off and to put them back in their place we don't need that having them become you know indoctrinated into this is fine it's just there's so much stuff that is just too on the nose and i believe i heard a snippet from nightmare on film street from john and kim where i agree with kim on this where it does almost feel like you know, corporate Twitter where it's going off to, you know, make these statements like this. And now some of the things that I was saying as well earlier that were brought up originally and then we do get like the bag over the face death when Riley tries to do it. And one of the young girls, I believe it's Jesse in the um, attic, is got a crowd Christmas lights wrapped around her as she's in a chair. And then like the nicicle death using to stab somebody, that's always somebody who's talking about Christmas horror movies, how they want to see that. I thought all those were good. It's just when you kind of do some of these other things, it's not so much. Oh, and I just believe some of the things I was talking to my girlfriend about as well that could have just been done better is I don't mind this film speaking out about fraternity rape culture. I'm a former fraternity guy myself. Didn't really stay all that active in it and didn't really participate in a whole lot of some of the things they did. But what I think would have made this movie better is we don't need all of necessarily the women empowerment stuff that we get. I'm fine with establishing that these fraternity guys are raping. It's a definitely a problem in the culture itself when you get things like this. I think if you kind of remove some of the heavy handedness and I don't even mind having Chris try to get Professor Gelson removed, but what you can do is just tone down a bit on beating down of the boyfriend who is a good guy and is sitting there helping all of them. I don't. Need, I even like the talent show aspect of it where she calls out those guys for doing it. Having these frat guys be as horrible human beings that they are is good. I think if you just make the girls seem more natural. I know there's another one where Helena turns out that she is being brainwashed where to make her subservient to the fraternity. I don't necessarily mind that. It kind of makes her a traitor, and I like that she's kind of called out on it and ends up getting killed in that aspect for the end. I also didn't wish that Riley would have seen the ceremony taking place. I don't think, as somebody who has done initiation, we would not do it while other people are in the building. So I almost feel like that should have been seen through a window, possibly. Like when she goes to look for items the next day there have her notice it that way i just don't feel like it's something they would have let anybody see that easily and it just feels like they're being a little bit lazy on the writing there all right that's going to go ahead and conclude everything that i have to say at this time for black christmas 2019 i'm going to go ahead and take you into the trailer for my next featured review which is going to be for eli
Hey. I'm Haley. I live down the road. I I'm Mila. You say you're what, like allergic to the world, right? I guess you could say that. We looked everywhere for a doctor to help you. You're gonna get better. Promise? Promise. Hello, Eli. I'm Dr. Horn. Hello. I hope you don't think of this as a medical facility. To me, it's a home. And for now, it's your home. Oh, it's been so long. Everything we hoped for is right here. Shall we begin? What do you think is making you sick? Lots of things. The air, water, dust. Eli's gonna get worse before he gets better. There's something in my room. Bad dreams are a side effect. It's perfectly normal. I don't mean to freak you out, but this place gives me the creeps. I think she's making me sicker. It's the medication. No, it's not the medication. Why do I feel worse? Because it's working. I think something bad is happening. Alright, welcome back. And to get into my second featured review of this episode is going to be Eli from 2019. This is directed by Sirian Foy and from a screenplay by David Chircirillo, Ian Goldberg, and Richard Nang. This is a horror movie from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.8 on IMDb and a 2.5 on Letterboxd. It is starring Charlie Shotwell, Kelly Riley, and Max Martini. And the synopsis is a boy receiving treatment for his autoimmune disorder discovers that the house he's living in isn't as safe as he thought. Now this was a film that I heard about in the beginning of the year, but it seemed to keep getting pushed back. I was pretty excited when I saw that there was some buzz thanks to some clickbait articles about how terrifying this was. My roommate even checked this out, so I was intrigued just to give it a viewing as he gave it, you know, a recommendation. Now we start off with a boy, um, Eli, who is played by Shotwell, as he's walking across the yard outside. He seems hesitant, but runs towards his family as he thinks everything is fine. They're blurry and we can't really make them out, but he ends up falling down and letting us know that he can't breathe. As it turns out, he's actually living in an oxygen tank as he has an autoimmune disorder that will kill him if he's out in the normal air. We see his routine where he has to have everything clean and sealed for him to use. His family is pretty much broke because they're trying to find a cure. We get to see this when his father, Paul, who's played by Martini, tries to pay for their hotel room. 
and his card gets declined and he's trying to figure out why it's so expensive and realizes that they're late on leaving. And his mother is played by uh, Riley and her name is Rose. And we get an interesting interaction as well when they're leaving the hotel when Eli gets spooked by some rednecks that are out drinking by their RV and we get an interesting interaction where his father is a little bit brash with him, but it seems to be that's kind of their rapport, so it is kind of cute. Now they take Eli out to a house that's in the middle of nowhere, and as they approach, they realize that it's a clean house, where in order to get inside, you have to go through an airlock that decontaminates them. As he goes inside, we see that it is run by Dr. Horn, who is played by Lily Taylor. From all accounts, she's a great immunologist, who has cured all the patients that have come to stay with her, as far as they know. She's assisted by two nurses, uh, Barbara, played by Deneen Tyler, and Marcella, played by Katia Gomez. And inside the house, Eli is actually able to leave the hazmat suit that he has to walk around when he's outside in, and can actually just be a normal kid. Now he's hesitant at first, but I believe you would be if you've had to, you know, live and be this cautious your whole life. And he's actually able to interact with his parents for the first time. Now I should have an addendum here is that this has been going on, I believe they say for three years. And from what we gather from interactions between Eli and Dr. Horn is that the gene lays dormant until around that time. And that's when the symptoms actually start to happen as I'm assuming the hormones kind of make it change things. Now Dr. Horn informs the family that it'll take three treatments to cure Eli's genetic disorder. They have to fix his genes with a virus that will jumpstart the immune system and fix it to start to act normal. The problem though is that even from the get-go, Eli thinks he's seen ghosts that are in this house. On top of that, there's a girl that visits him who is Haley, played by Sadie Sink. She tells him that Dr. Horn doesn't like her and that she's hiding something and all in out calling her that she's shifty. Eli starts to distrust Dr. Horn because of that and realizes that these ghosts that visit him might not be out to hurt him, but to reveal the truth of this place and what is going on, he needs to figure out if Dr. Horn really is hiding something and we kind of see that she is, but it isn't necessarily what Eli thinks. He's convinced that she's not there to help him, but to kill him. Paul wants his son to be you know, cured, as does his mother, but the more that Rose learns, the less she's on board for it, where Paul you know, still wants to go the course. Now I have to say, this film really does have some interesting aspects in it for sure. The first thing is that I like the idea of having Eli inside of what could potentially be a haunted house. Now he can't leave, and his parents don't believe anything's actually going on, so it makes it a contained horror film in this aspect, because he you know, can't just walk out the door. And I will say, I'm a big fan of films like that. To add to this as well, Horn tells the parents that the treatments she's giving him can make him hallucinate. I like this angle, as we as viewers don't know if what he's seeing is real or not, or if it's all in his head. I will say though, this film does go to the dream sequence a few times, and I don't think it works as well as it should. I like the initial one, as it's a good way to establish his ailment, what I didn't like was to use it to possibly explain some of the ghostly encounters. We get some interesting reveals in the story as well. We learn that Dr. Horn isn't necessarily telling the truth about everything. I like that the more we learn, Paul and Rose are both hiding things as well. And I got this from just some subtle interactions and kind of remarks that are made, which I thought was good. Haley is interesting as well in planting the seeds of doubt with Eli. 
as she's interacted with the other children who are treated here. Now I'm going to have a spoiler section so I'll delve into that a little bit more, but I don't ever think Eli really thinks that Dr. Horn's a liar until Haley kind of says something to him, so I like that aspect. If there's something about this movie I had issues with, it has to be part of it with the pacing. I like how it introduced us to Eli and his family. I also like Dr. Horn and the facility that is being uh, that she's running. There's some subtle things that we get that make a lot of sense later on, which like I've kind of already touched on, includes Haley and some of the things that she reveals, as well as some of the things with the parents. I wasn't necessarily into the ghostly aspect, as I feel like it comes off a little bit too cheesy, and we get a lot of these type of movies that come out all the time. But I did come around to it at the reveal of what is really going on here. The climax sequence, though, really pulled me in, and I really enjoyed where they took it. As for the acting of the film, I didn't mind shot well overall. I try not to be too hard on children actors, as there are so few that are really good. And I did find him to be annoying at times, but I also am forgiving as he's been living in an enclosure, not really been able to experience the world around him, so I probably would be pretty ornery myself. Riley and Martini are both solid. As I've kind of touched on a few times, their interactions make a lot of sense at the reveal, and I dug that. I liked Taylor. She's an actress that I saw in the genre and really liked her. Uh, she's an actress that I saw pretty early on in the genre with The Haunting from 1999 and really has kind of emerged as a screen queen of sorts with her catalog in the genre. I like that she is presented as the villain with an interesting reveal. Sync is good for her role as needed, as well as Tyler and Gomez. The children that play ghosts were also fine as well. We actually don't get to see the whole lot of them though, so I can't give them too much credit, but they did have a kind of creepy look. Now, the effects in this film weren't the greatest. There's a lot of CGI, which makes sense, as that's the easiest thing to do for the ghosts that we get. I don't think they look any better than the low-budget ghostlies that we see coming out. I did like what they did to show Eli's disorder is killing him, where his skin looks like it's almost like rotting in front of us. And I also like what they did during the climax. I do think that is shot well, especially in their use of mirrors overall. Now with that said, this film was one that I thought was solid. I did lose my interest until the reveal for a bit, but then I was back on board. I liked that it contained where this child cannot go out into the world due to an autoimmune disorder. The reveal of the truth of everything I really liked is it blew me away and I wasn't expecting it to go that way. The acting I thought was pretty solid, and the CGI was kind of hit or miss, if I'm going to be honest. The soundtrack didn't really stand out to me, but it also didn't hurt. It did fit for what was needed, and I would say overall this is an above average film, and I came in with a 7 out of 10. Now with that said, I'm going to go ahead and kick this over to some spoilers here, which as I've said before, I will have it time coded so you know where to um, skip ahead if you don't want to hear any of this, but I'm going to go ahead and jump into that now. As Eli learns that these ghosts are not trying to hurt him, the message they leave isn't just telling him that Dr. Horn is lying. It is also the code to the door that will take him to the medical wing. What I like about this though is we do get to see Eli looking up at her as she enters the code, so I like that this is almost a giallo thing where his subconscious is presenting this to him where he could be the one that had scratched all that into the uh, bureau door that he finds it on. and. Haley also reveals as well that she communicated with Perry, who is portrayed by Austin Fox, and also saying that he saw ghosts. Dr. Horn told Eli and his parents that's not the case, but once he finds the files, we learn the ghosts aren't act are actually the former patients, 
of Perry, Agnes, who is Kalia Posey, and Lucius uh, Parker Lovin. None of them survived uh, the third treatment. But then the major reveals are that Dr. Horn is a former nun. There's a moment where Eli is locked in a basement that feels almost like a dungeon and has an odd Christian-like altar as well as what seems to be a well. Rose ends up seeing that Eli was right. Dr. Horn has been killing the children. It turns out, though, Paul is not his father. Eli is the son of the devil. Rose prayed to Satan in order to get pregnant, so that is why Eli is possessed. So this whole time, these kids don't have an autoimmune disorder. They're all actually possessed, and Dr. Horn is trying to exercise them. Now, during this climax, though, he starts to use his power in order to kill Dr. Horn and the two nurses. And it's crazy because he actually has them flipped upside down like they're on a cross, and they get set on fire as they spin around the room. There's also a reveal that Haley is his half-sister, but she's also a demon. I really am into the corruption of religion and humanity, so I dug this angle. I like the interaction where Paul makes these snide remarks, as I picked up on pretty early on that Rose cheated on him, just not the way that I expected. I do feel that they could have slid some more to help us get there, as I do feel this reveal comes out of nowhere. The nun reveal happened was a bit too late to you know, kind of use as that aspect, so I kind of feel they should have had something a little bit more, but I'm not going to be too harsh there. And it's interesting as well that the ghosts were trying to keep Eli alive as they're kind of the weaker half-brothers and sisters. And something that Dr. Horn reveals is that Eli was too strong and was resisting this treatment, which is actually the exorcism. Now that's all I really wanted to kind of delve into there. As I kind of thought this was all kind of interesting and kind of things that tick off on my boxes. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is take us to one last musical break before I close up the show. show 
If you want to get a hold of me, you can email me at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. If you want to read any of my written reviews for any of the ones on this episode or any of the ones I've written previously, it's Reviews of the Dead. And that is horrorreview.webnode.com. And I'll also have the link below. You can find me on Facebook, where I'm at David Michigan Garrett Jr. On Twitter as Buckeye from Mish, all one word. Letterboxd is David OSU. Instagram is David OSU87. If you want to join the Flick Chat app where we can, you know, talk more about anything on this episode or anything in general, that join code is Journey with a Cinephile, all one word. I will also have the links to any previous episodes if you want to figure out how to check that out. This show currently is only available on Anchor as well as on Spotify if you want to listen to it on either of those platforms. Or I'll also have the link below where you can subscribe to the RSS feed or as well as be able to find those other episode links as well. Once again, I want to go ahead and thank you for listening. This is David Garrett Jr. signing off.